Welcome to the Popcorn Talk Network. For the online broadcast network that features movie discussion, news, and interviews, press one. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. From the Popcorn Talk Network, the online broadcast network for movie talk, Alicia Malone with Scott Movie Mance and the Schmoes Know, this is Profiles, in-depth spotlights on the greatest filmmakers and artists in motion picture history. Hello, Profiler. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say Schmoville. Hello, Schmoville. Old habits die hard, don't they? Hello, Schmoville. Hello, Profilers. Now, I know that we are sitting in the studio right now, but we're not really here. No, we're not. Where we are, are we? In Park City, Utah. Covering the Sundance Film Festival. And I'm going to guess we're having a wonderful time. We're having the best time because where else would Malone and Mance rather be not doing profiles, <laughs> but at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City. If we have to miss the profiles, it's for a good reason. But I didn't want to leave our profilers and our schmovillians without a new episode. So we thought we should come up with uh, the best of the guests, kind of a highlight episode, because we have had some amazing interviews. We, in 21 shows, our first 21 shows, we've had a guest on almost every single one. Mm-hmm. This is this is our little show, <laughs> our little labor of love, and we've managed to get get some really incredible, incredible guests to call uh. on to the show, or for us to sit down with them at these junkets. The studios actually make time for us, and they bring in another chair, and they do the lighting. It's really cool. Because they know that when we are talking, it is about the movies, and we are celebrating the filmmakers and the films themselves. We have a lot of passion about them, and, and people love talking about their careers or reflecting on someone else's careers, and not worrying about the normal Hollywood stuff, but just talking about the movies and our interviews has seriously been uh, the highlights of my career. Absolutely agree because you know you and I interview these celebrities for for, for the people, shows yeah. that we work for, but this is our show. Yes. So to have a moment like Francis Ford Coppola calling in oh to gosh. talk to us on our show or us sitting down with Tim Burton yeah. representing our show or us talking to, I got to say, talking to three Hitchcock blondes mm. on one show as it was rolling live was, I, I can't believe we actually did that. It's going to be hard to pare this episode down, but let's see uh, some of our highlights of all the interviews we've done. Take it away. Take it away. Over the past 21 episodes of Profiles, Malone and Mance have been able to sit down with some incredible guests. Episode 19 was a celebration of Tim Burton. So who better to talk about Tim Burton's career than Tim Burton himself? Well, after doing sort of larger scale productions like Alice in Wonderland, like Dark Shadows, how great was it? How liberating was it for you as an artist to to scale back and just focus on character like you did with Big Fish and Ed Wood? Yeah, well, it was great, you know. I, I mean, you know, the, it was, it, it, you know, it was low budget, but it was, it was fun. Smaller crew. I mean, it just. It, luckily, I had great actors. I mean, every actor that I worked with was somebody I had never worked with but admired, and mm. so I was very, very um, lucky to to work and meet, meet new people and give it a different energy, you know, and, and you know, moving around quickly, trying to make Vancouver look like San Francisco <laughs> and things like that. You know, it, was, it was quite challenging, but, but, but very much fun. And, and again, I had such a, my own personal connection to this story, so it meant a lot to me. 
Yeah, did it feel like a, a personal story for you? Because you mentioned you grew up with this artwork. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and uh, also I understand that that sort of dynamic, you know, the the question of what's good and what's bad or what's art or what's not, and mm. you know, because I've experienced that myself in terms of people's the polarization of opinion. I mean, I remember. You know, as a child, you know, people either loved the Keynes work or hated it. You know, I mean, there was no in between in, in terms of the response to it. So uh, that's something that I could relate to, and and also just the the, the Margaret's character, the, her shyness, her, her not being able to communicate. You know, only through her work, and all was something I could relate to. And you know, Walter's sort of manic depressive mood swings and I could under, you know, so I, I understood all the characters you know? well the the, uh, the movie sort of does take you back especially because of Scott and Larry how did this sort of compare to making Edward which is also based on a real life character yeah well they're good they're good at finding these sort of truth or stranger than fiction characters you know the re- real real stories and uh, and also both it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The similarity between Ed Wood and, and, and Keene is in the sense that, that, that you know, obviously there are people sort of outside the mainstream of society yeah. on one level, mm-hmm. and uh, their work is, you know, decisively, you know, people are very opinionated about is, whether things are good or bad, and, uh, you know, so, so they, they know how to really mine these characters. And this year is actually the 25th anniversary of Batman. Mm. So I wonder if you could share some of your favorite memories well, from making that. Well, I just remember being ill the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it really, it, was, it, it felt new at the time, which felt exciting, you know. I, I mean, it was, even though it was sort of, you know, sometimes criticized for being too dark or whatever, uh, it, it just felt exciting and new at the time, you know, and... Uh, uh, you know, working with Michael, who had worked with on Beetlejuice, and then him doing sort of, the, the, you know, the opposite kind of thing, the more, more restrained, uh, you know, being Batman, and, and obviously Jack Nicholson, and it was such a, a, a great help, you know, uh, supporter of me at, at that time because I hadn't really done a big movie, so I, I was very, very, felt very lucky and excited to be to be doing it at that time. Mm-hmm. And last question, you know, bringing it back to to big eyes, how great working with Golden Globe nominees Amy Adams and Christoph yeah. Waltz on yeah. this film. No, I mean they're they're both you know the characters are obviously so different and yet they they work together so well and and like I said for me this was a you know since I'm not really a social person it was a great way to meet people you know that <laughs> I admire and want to work with you know and so you know the whole cast was that way each and every one of them was somebody that I'd seen and admired them as people or their work and uh, so uh, again that just made it a real special experience. With Interstellar new in theaters, episode 13 focused on the films of Christopher Nolan. And once again, Malone and Mann sat down with the subject of their profile, Mr. Christopher Nolan. Well, congratulations on Interstellar. It's such an amazing movie, a huge movie in scope. But would you say it's also really personal? Uh, It certainly intends to be. I mean, mean, what drew me to the project originally was the relationship between a father and, and his children at the heart of the story. I loved the idea of 
taking that relationship and testing it in a, in a cosmic way and contrasting those human emotions and, and human scale problems with this, this greater endeavor. Well, we know that Stanley Kubrick is a big influence on you, mm. especially 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. It's such a grand film. And we just felt like there was so much of that grandness in Interstellar. How did you capture that? And how daunting was it to capture that? It was, uh, the, I mean, it was daunting to think of what Kubrick had done with 2001, um, uh, but inspirational at the same time. Yeah. I mean, when we, we riffed on a lot of his techniques on Inception, for example, with the zero-G sequences, and that was fun because we were sort of completely repurposing something. But actually getting into the same arena as a great masterpiece like that, that's very daunting. But the inspiration, remembering what it was like to sit... Uh, I was seven years old when I saw it with my father in Leicester Square, so sit there watching this huge image on screen and, and be transported into you know, a, a universe, a corner of the universe you never could have even imagined. Uh, I remember what that feeling was, and that was inspiring to try and give somebody that feeling now today. I think you did, because we were looking around during the screening and everyone's faces were like... And the jaws were hanging off. Just open. in awe. <laughs> oh, that's great. But when it came to your approach on Interstellar, would you say it was any different to your approach on maybe your earlier films, like Memento? I mean, it's a little difficult to analyse. There was one sense in which it was different, um, which is when we came to do finish the visual effects and, and the editing and everything, You know, I realised that the technique I'd, I'd most been using to inspire excitement or, or, you know, in, in an audience is really to see it through the character's eyes, to whatever it is, you know, if it's, you know, Batman's, you know, Batmobile or something, you know, you, you cut to a character and you see their reaction and that's that's how you get the audience to feel a particular thing. But when it comes to this subject matter, you have to go beyond that and you have to actually present a set of imagery that, that directly affects the audience, not through another character. Um, and that was... Uh, that was an interesting lesson to learn. And when I look back at, you know, a great film like 2001, you, you see that's the difference, is that is a film that is directly affecting you with a sense of wonder and a sense of awe with its own imagery, not just viewing it through other characters. Interstellar tries to do, to do both. But when you, when you look at your career, the trajectory of your career, as your films have gotten bigger, grander, more ambitious, this, this sense all the way through of just continuing to challenge the audience, challenge mm. their intelligence, make them think, even on a trilogy like the Dark Knight trilogy, how important is that to you to maintain that sense where you're really entertaining but also challenging the moviegoer? Mm. I don't really think of it so much as challenging the moviegoer. I think of it as challenging myself and ourselves as, as filmmakers to try and guide the audience through something that, that is uh, complex or otherworldly or new in, in some way to them. I mean, that's really the fun of making a film. Uh, and I love making a film for a wide audience, and I have a lot of faith in the audience. I view myself as part of the audience, and I want to try and uh, respect the audience's intelligence. Uh, for me, it's clear that if, if the emotion of the story is clear, if the stakes of the story are, are clear, and the excitement of things is, is there and the entertainment's there, people will follow you anywhere. Well, we're film geeks. Huge. <laughs> so I love your commitment to film itself. Mm. Did you always want to shoot Interstellar on film and with IMAX cameras? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I only shoot on film, and uh, that, that's my great love. Uh, as far as using IMAX cameras go, I've used them um, several times before with great, great success, uh, technically. And uh, I really enjoy that, that format. Um, it seemed absolutely 
perfectly suited to, to this kind of story with the kind of imagery we, were gonna, we knew we wanted to be, to be dealing with. So we, we threw the cameras in as much as we could and really tried to, uh, we really tried to fill that, that great canvas. The last question is that throughout Interstellar, there's this pervading sense of optimism, a pervading sense of idealism that made me think about the right stuff. Mm. And how did you capture that for a film like Interstellar, which is just so grand and there's so much at stake? Well, partly by watching the right stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I screened Philip Kaufman's film for, for the whole cast and, and crew, because, or for the crew and, and the uh, visual effects guys and, and everybody, because what they did, I mean, it's a true story, uh, and it's such a wonderful era of tremendous optimism and great exploration and spirit, you know, and the title itself says the right stuff. Um, so... We really did want to, to capture that, and we looked at the techniques they'd employed because the film, that film, is technically extremely well made. Um, and we really looked at it and said, okay, if they could do that in 1983, we don't have any excuse for not, you know, pushing it as hard as we can in, in that direction and trying to create as as real an environment for the audience to experience, for the actors to experience while we're filming it as possible. In episode 17, Malone and Mance talked about the movies of Ridley Scott and were joined on the phone by Sir Ridley, who called in from Europe to talk about his new film, Exodus, Gods and Kings. Well, looking at your career, you've got Gladiator, which is fantastic, Kingdom of Heaven, now Exodus. Would you say you are particularly drawn to these big period epics? Um, no, it's whatever, you know, fancies, whatever, whatever takes my fancy. Um, I, it's a very English expression. (laughs) (laughs) Australian as well. (laughs) The big plan with me is that there is no plan. I kind of bounce from pillar to post where I'm in constant state of, of developing material that I want to do. So for instance, right now, I know I'm right in the middle of what in, in Budapest of what I'm doing next. I'm halfway through. And I know pretty well what I'm going to do next year. And that's, I always work ahead of the game. And that usually is development. Because you cannot ever rely on having a script sent to you that you're going to want to do. Right. So I learned that very early on. And by, if you believe that, you're suddenly going to get horrible two-year gaps. Yeah. Well, because you are, you do have so much going on. I mean, I feel like you're, you're at the busiest stage of your career ever between the, the television that you've been producing, the films you've been producing, and the movies that you are directing as well. And just because you do sort of have a, a full slate for the next couple of years, I just, uh, would love to know, you know, what is it that, that inspires Ridley Scott? What, what is it that when you, when you read something, you're developing something, you just go, yes, this is what I'm going to spend the next 18 months to two years of my life doing well you know i uh, was briefly i'll keep it as brief as i can um uh, academically at school i was zero which um you know is not unusual for a lot of people um and i didn't know where i was, I was going but the one thing i could do very well was draw inordinately well and because of that i got into some very good art schools and by getting into art school i found my vocation in life I would have been happy to be an art master, uh, providing I could paint at weekends. And um, <laughs> But it went further than that because I got into the Royal College of Art, and so the whole thing starts to evolve. And by then, I'm in London. I'm taking great, paying great attention. I'm an inveterate member of the of National Film Theatre, so I'm seeing a lot of foreign films. So I got into a foreign films fairly early on and became passionate about the idea of making films. No film schools at that point. 
So I followed my nose into BBC, and from that moment on, I gradually evolved into being a director of BBC. And suddenly I thought, my God, I'm going to actually try to make a film one day. <laughs> Ironically, I never made my first movie till I was 39, till I was 40. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And would you say that your approach to Exodus has changed from your approach to Gladiator all those years ago? Well, Gladiator was an entirely made-up uh, good concoction of, of a, simply, in, in, a, in a phrase, a revenge film. Yeah. Um, it was introducing a guy who would be a big star to the, mm-hmm. to the screen, um, Russell Crowe. Yeah. And we made up back that Maximus was the Spanish general, because there would have been Spanish generals, there would have been English generals, kind of Anglo-Saxon generals, would have to be half Roman, actually. But um, you know, Marx Aurelius was real, Commodus was a real son of Moses, of, um, I said Moses, <laughs> of, 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 of uh, the, and the emperor who never set foot in Rome for 17 years. He spent the last 17 years of his life in Germany, Mm. Marx Aurelius never actually managing to defeat the Gauls until wow. they finally came down to Rome and sacked Rome. So we, we took a lot of the real characters and evolved the story around them. Mm. Well, well, in doing this profile special on you, Sir Ridley Sky, yeah. we were really amazed sort of going back and realizing the impact, the cultural impact yeah. of the movie Thelma and Louise, which is almost amazingly 25 years old. And, you know, looking back on the impact of Thelma and Louise, you know, you got nominated for a director, Callie Corey won screenplay, and both Gina and Susan both got nominated for Best Actress. How proud are you still of the impact of Thelma and Louise all these years later? Well, I was surprised at the impact. Um, I was suddenly surprised to see them on Time magazine cover. Um, <laughs> and Callie's script had come to me for me as a producer. And I went around, and because I had the production company then, and I went, went, I was, went around five directors, I won't say who they were, saying, <laughs> you know, you, 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 and everyone had a problem with it or didn't think there was anything there. And, a couple of them said, well, I've got a problem with the women. I said, well, actually, you're meant to, dude. It's still <laughs> about you. And um, so eventually I met an actress who was, I won't say who she was, but she's revered then, revered today, who said to me, why don't you come to your senses and you direct it? That stopped me in my tracks. So I did. And um, out of that, I always figured, I looked on Thelma Louise as, I, I tend to think of things in epic terms. And... Um, I thought this was an epic journey with two women which would evolve into what, in essence, was the last journey. It would, of course, be the last journey. And it's just that, you know, I apply my eye to it, to the landscape, to the scale, and suddenly it's a big movie with two great actresses yeah. and a very, 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 very on the, on the, to the point screenplay. Mm. You can almost shot a documentary with a screenplay, but I saw a lot of humor in it so I went for the humor side because I figured if I didn't, it would just cut off so many men, right? Yeah. I wanted men to see it as well as women to appreciate it. The films of John Hughes have been a staple of many teenagers' lives since the 1980s. To give an insight into what John Hughes was like to work with in episode 10, Matthew Broderick made time between rehearsals on his play to talk to Malone and Mance. 
you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is still regarded as one of the all-time classic movies. Why do you think? Why do you think it still holds up? Um, I don't, that's a good question. I, uh, I mean, I think it's very entertaining and funny, and you know, uh, it seems to translate to a lot of different types of people too. I, I guess everybody wants a day off or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, or, or they can. It's very relatable because I, I hear people from all over the world tell me, you know, in all sorts of languages that they uh, how much it meant to them. So. Yeah, I I from Australia and I used to watch it every uh-huh. time I was sick. I just loved this movie so much. Yeah. I still do. It's still so much fun. When you first read the screenplay, what did you think of it? Um, I thought it was hilarious and very original and um uh I had just I barely I had just started to hear of John Hughes. I think I had seen uh 16 Candles or something and maybe Breakfast Club and so I knew he was like, they, they referred to him as the Spielberg of teen movies or something, oh. I remember. And, uh, and then I read it and I thought it was a terrific part. And, um, I was doing a play at the time where I was talking to the audience. I remember the fact that the character talks to the audience. I thought, does this mean I'm going to have to talk to the audience every time I do a movie or a play? I remember <laughs> being concerned about that, but, um, I loved it. And then I met, I think I flew out and met John shortly after that. There's some great dialogue in there, but was he open to improvisation? Um, most of the time, yeah. I mean, we always did his... I would say 99% of what you see in the movie is exactly from his script. Some scenes were kind of made up on the spot, and those we did improvise. We always did one of exactly his dialogue, and mostly that's what's in the movie, but like I think you brought up the, the clarinet thing was made up. We made that up there just because there was a clarinet sitting there <laughs> in the movie. And, um, you know, the towel on my head was just because that's how my sister used the towel. And <laughs> I thought of that. Like, he was very open. He loved anything you brought, any idea you had. Well, I was talking earlier in the show about how I'm, I'm a huge Beatles fan, uh, Matthew, and mm-hmm. i got to tell you, my favorite scene in the movie is the Don Shane twist and shout parade scene, and i got to ask, right. what was it like filming that scene? Was it as much fun to shoot that scene as it still is to watch? <laughs> well, it was different. You know, like the feeling of shooting is always, uh, you know, it took two days. It took um, two weekends, as, as I recall. Wow. One, I think one day each weekend, but one was the real parade, and then we, then we had uh, just regular people and and did and did a pretend parade. So the whole end is like the huge crowd is is all pretend. That was all just people showing up for shooting. Um, <laughs> what I remember about it is I remember that we had a very careful choreography. I busted my knee at the beginning of the shoot. So I couldn't barely do anything. And then when we shot, um, eventually they were like, just do whatever crosses your mind. So half of what you see in there is just us being idiots. And then (laughs) other, others of it is very choreographed, but it was kind of a mix of those, of those two things. So the two part question I have for you, Matthew, is this, how come you and John never did a Ferris Bueller sequel? And the second part to that is, do you think that a sequel is still in the cards? Can we someday see a sequel to Ferris Bueller? Um, well, I, it, it's um, I'm not exactly sure why we didn't. We talked about a sequel uh, at shortly after, a couple of years after, but 
John was very busy. He was he made a, he was making a lot of movies, and I was busy too. And um, we never quite got to a final idea of what it would be. It always seemed to be like it would just be repeating the first movie. So, in some ways, I think it was it was nice to just leave it as a mm. as a one thing. I don't know if it would be quite as special if it was repeated in in different locations and, you know, college or work or it seems to be about that, that age and that part of your life. But having said all that, now I look back and I think, why well, we should have done more of those because it was, you know, why not? Yeah. <laughs> at the time I thought, at the time I thought it's such a good thing to maybe to just leave it as itself. That's what I thought. Yeah, well, I, oh gosh, I love this movie so much. And, uh, mm. it just had such a great energy about it. And the dialogue mm. always, that was something that John Hughes was so yeah. good at. What would you say is John's legacy? John's legacy, well, it's, it, the thing about it is it's 30 years or whatever, 25 years, I don't know how many years it is. And, uh, people still talk about it. So mm. that's, that's quite a particularly with a movie about teenagers those are usually kind of I think forgotten pretty quickly and I think a lot of people at the time would have thought that about John but um, certainly turned out not to be true director Wes Anderson has just been nominated for a best director Oscar for his work on the Grand Budapest Hotel perfect timing for episode 20 of Profiles with special guest Jason Schwartzman sharing his experiences with his longtime friend well, but because you've worked with so many great directors, I mean, what is it about Wes when you watch him work? Like, what's his style? How does he work with actors? Like, what kind of direction does he give? And obviously, mm-hmm. he's very he's very meticulous with his set design. I mean, that's that's obvious. <laughs> well, um, you know, there's there's lots of great directors, and they each have their own um, signature style or something that, you know, makes it, maybe it's sometimes it's not visual, but it's the writing or, you know, the, the humor or, and um, I think that with Wes, like if I think about it, it's, you know, it's a few things. One, I just think that like he, and like I say, everyone's different, but Wes, if you like his like gut instinct um, about something or like his approach or his take on a scene is just coming from a totally different place instantly and very and naturally you know what i mean like um it just the way he's uh thinking about things or what he what he sees as funny um you know i don't feel like you know other that's his that's his sort of gift or yeah, like sure. his own brother you know there's so many different people that have mm. their version of something that makes them so special and you know i think that it's many things but like I think his sense of humor is just like I don't know there's really nothing quite like it to me and um, it's like this strange combination of happy and sad I guess and uh, I don't know I feel like stupid talking about it but the other (laughs) thing is like when you're when you're working with him um, one thing that that I that on on Rushmore for instance um, there's a scene um, where I'm part of this go-kart club and uh, I remember when we were shooting that scene um, between takes Wes jumped in a go-kart and said let's go follow me and we like drove off the set and drove these go-karts all around the suburban streets of Houston and he had this big smile on his face and you felt that he 
wanted to like experience go-karting and maybe that's why it was in the movie a little bit you know what I mean like he was excited about it and I feel that on every movie he's done he makes it because some part of him wants to experience it personally yeah and so he's excited about it and like enjoys it so like on set he's smiling and like when he's talking to the actors and showing them um his idea for something it's not like it doesn't to me feel like uh, pained or you know it's like very um he's just he's excited to be there to be doing it oh that's um, great so it's yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Rushmore, I I still love the movie. It's so yeah, great. Yeah, so great. <laughs> Why do you think it holds up so well, even after all these years? I don't know. I can't really say, but it is cool. Like um, you know, this is the first time in my life that um, you know I'll be walking down the street and someone will come up to me and tell me that they saw Rushmore, and the person who's saying it is the age or younger than I was when we made it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I never, yeah, so it's like, it's uh, really nice because it, it it feels like it has crossed to a generation that wasn't there. And um, that's like, I don't know, to me that just seems like the ultimate thing because, um, you know, I am that kid. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like who, who, who was 16, 17, and movies and music meant so much. So the fact that like I could be in something that could mean that much to someone at that age, I don't know, it's like specifically to that age, like I, it's cool that a 12-year-old would come up and say it, but the fact that like someone's 16 or 17, which is the age that I was, mm. there's something like uh, amazing about it to me because that was like, that was my kind of breakthrough year for, um, for experiencing a whole new kind of movie. Um, not, not being in a movie, but like I, I, that's when I discovered a whole different group of directors and stuff and, and movies to watch mm-hmm. that kind of took me to another um, place and viewing adventure in my life. And so when I meet people that are that age specifically who like Rushmore, it's really kind of like a, a thrill and also very moving. Well, but because Rushmore was your feature film debut, it was also your first film with Wes. It was a it was a film that really established a relationship and a rapport between you guys. And I want to, I want to know, like, what point... How far into the making of this movie did you realize that you and Wes really had a groove that would really flourish in the coming years? Well, when I met him at the audition, I felt instantly like I wanted to be friends with him. I remember that feeling because when I went into the audition, honestly, I didn't think I was going to get the part. Um, So I just, I went in for the experience. And when um, when I walked in, and I saw him, I was surprised. I didn't know he was so young. Yeah. And um, I remember we were talking about, we started talking about the band Weezer, uh, <laughs> who the year before that had released this album called Pinkerton. I remember that. Which had meant a lot to me, and, and Wes really liked it too. And we had this long conversation about it, and I remember thinking, wow, this, I, I, would, I wish I could be friends with this guy. And he was also sort of like one of the first adults um, to take to treat me like a equal, mm. you know, like most adults that you're in your life at that time are, you know, your parents, whatever. They're kind of like talking down to you, and he really like took me. It seemed like he took me. I don't know, seriously is the right word, but he kind of like you know asked me questions that most adults that I had met at that time hadn't, and I liked that, and I liked him, and 
In fact, like when I went in and we, we talked for like maybe 20, 30, 40 minutes before we even got to the audition. And I remember when he said, like, should we read now? I remember either, I know I thought it, but I might have said, maybe we should just stop right here. Uh, maybe I shouldn't audition because <laughs> this sounds so nicely just uh, friend-wise. Yeah. Um, maybe I don't want to spoil it by being bad. Um, <laughs> so instantly there was like a, I felt that there was like a real comfort and rapport. Um, and then, I don't know, it was just such a powerful, like he gave me so much love and care while we were making that movie. Uh. We were staying in a hotel together and we were just a few doors down from each other and every night or most nights after work, um, he and I would have dinner together in his room and talk about the next day's work and then like watch a movie. Um, mm. So there was just a real mentor type uh, approach or philosophy that he was sort of like maybe doing um, unconsciously or whatever, but he was just instantly beyond meaningful to me as a, as a friend and a person. Episode 4 of Profiles took a look at Stanley Kubrick, one of the best directors of all time. Actor Matthew Modine called in and shared his memories of working with Kubrick on the classic war flick, Full Metal Jacket. I just want to flash back to, to the beginning of your Full Metal Jacket experience. You know, A, how did you come to be cast in this movie? And what was your first impression of Stanley Kubrick when you met him? Well, it's kind of by accident. I talk about it in the book and in the app. Uh, that I, I was at a restaurant with a friend of mine, David Allen Greer, a really wonderful, talented uh, comedian and actor. And <clears throat> there was an actor sitting opposite me in the restaurant who appeared to be kind of cursing directly in my direction, calling me names. And and I said to David, I said, either this guy's an actor learning his lines or he's got Tourette. <laughs> but he's 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 looking at me, calling me, uh, you know, calling me names right to my face. And, and he looked over his shoulder. He goes, oh, that's Val Kilmer. Uh-huh. He's a really nice guy. So he got up and he went over and he started talking to Val. And <clears throat> David waved me over and said, Karina, I'll introduce you to Val. I said, hey, my name's Matthew. And he goes, yeah, I know who you are. I'm sick of you. <laughs> and apparently he'd, he'd been up auditioning for many of the films that I had I had done and, and now he'd heard that I was doing Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket which of course I didn't know anything about you had to audition for Stanley you had to send him a VHS tape uh, with a scene of your work and I hadn't done that and obviously Val had of course the long story short was when I when I left the restaurant and called up my agent and asked him if he knew anything about it and he said he didn't and I said well you know, Alan Parker is editing Birdie in London right now. We could call him and have him send over a scene, and we'll call Warner Brothers and ask them to send a scene from from Vision Quest or send him the movie. And about, I don't know, less than a month later, I received a script in the mail from Stanley Kubrick yeah. asking me if I'd be in his movie. So in many ways, Val Kilmer may be responsible for my having got the part in the film. Time to pay it forward. That's incredible. (laughs) And it had been seven years since Kubrick made The Shining before Full Metal Jacket. Do you know why he waited so long in between films? Um, I think he was always looking for good material. There there may have been, and I'm sure there were, several projects that he he considered in between Full Metal Jacket Mm. and The Shining. Um, Because he was always working on something. Uh, But... but this, this, this. I mean, he wanted to make uh, Eyes Wide Shut for for a couple decades. Wow. So, um, 
and and I think Michael Hare, the man who wrote the the, the narration in Apocalypse Now and who wrote the screenplay for Full Metal Jacket, he originally <clears throat> met Stanley to talk about writing Eyes Wide Shut. It was it was well before Full Metal Jacket, right. so wow. that could have easily Full Metal Jacket may have may have become the the last film that he ever made. Oh. Well, well, and another great scene in the film is is in the latrine with Vincent D'Onofrio as Private Pyle. Uh, what, uh, what an amazing performance from from Vincent D'Onofrio! Just tell us about working with him and, of course, filming that scene in particular. It's just one of the most haunting uh, uh, scenes in the entire movie. Yeah, we 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 worked on that quite a bit, you know, and and talked about it. That that what are the right words to say in a circumstance like that? Mm. And we we actually, I mean, everybody thinks that everything with Stanley Kubrick's films was was really laid out and and you know like a like a piece of uh, Beethoven sheet music, but it wasn't. There was uh, there was always room for discovery and rewriting, and um, so we worked on that scene and. And through improvisation, uh, you know, me, like Stanley saying, what would you do in a situation like this? And then we'd start to, you know, improvise the scene. And, and, and Stanley kind of wonderfully said, it's the right sentiment. It's just too many words. So how do we reduce that? How do we get it down to a reduction? Mm-hmm. And I'd say this about, about most artists like Stanley Kubrick or Picasso or Matisse, Gauguin, that in the in the end, ends of their careers or later on in their careers that when they'd really mastered their art, it was always about reduction. It was about the line. You know, it was about how do you make a stroke on a painting and and make it make it pure. And and so when you watch Full Metal Jacket, it is absolutely uh, a film with with such simplicity. It's 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 amazing. It's just, it's just it's so simple. It's just the the work of a, of a master filmmaker, and and that story, that film, that same script put in someone else's hands, might come off as a kind of pro pro film, pro war film, a propaganda film, something that made war look romantic, something that made it look kind of appealing, and and uh, with Stanley, by not really commenting on anything, but just presenting images and presenting uh presenting a story uh it, it, that's the work of a master it's a great perspective yeah that's really great it also perspective. means it's quite timeless as well so what would you say your favorite memories of working with kubrick and do you have a favorite kubrick film maybe outside of full metal jacket yeah i really love paths of glory and and the killing the mm. the racetrack First, movie yeah, yeah i mean dr dr strange was absolutely i mean it's just it's just a, it's just brilliant it's just it's just brilliant well, and um uh but what is my favorite Stanley Kubrick story? Oh, just, yeah, just uh, any memories you have that you like want a, to share? Like a special memory that you have. Maybe he bought you a cup of coffee and put two <laughs> sugars in it. Who knows? <laughs> I think, you know, now that he's passed away, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expose him and say that I used to go over to his house and watch movies. Oh, uh, because he had a he, he had a projector, so he'd order the movies from a studio and they'd send him the, the, the reels. And he didn't want to hire a projectionist to do the real changes, so we'd watch them one reel at a time, uh-huh. which was wonderful because we could watch a reel and then discuss it and, and try to anticipate what was going to come in the next reel. So we, the, dis- the discussion between reels was really, really quite extraordinary and fun. Uh-huh. 
In episode 12, Mance allowed Malone to geek out about her all-time favorite director, Alfred Hitchcock. They had three Hitchcock blondes calling in, including the very classy Eva Marie Saint, who starred in North by Northwest. And just re-watching North by Northwest, I mean, it's the 55th anniversary this year. It's still one of the greatest movies ever made. Where do you see it in terms of other Hitchcock movies? Why do you think it stands out? Well, I think uh, Ernest Lehman, who wrote the script, I think it's such an interesting um, script. You know, listen, I still don't know where North by Northwest is. (laughs) But, you know, it's kind of complicated, but it has an interesting script. It has, um, it's a sexy story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's beautifully done. It's beautifully photographed. And, and, and the, the color is gorgeous. I've seen it on the big, big screen. Well, like at the bowl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Hitchcock just had this feeling, you know, about music, speaking of music. And, and he just felt that it, uh, it was an alternate language that could express his characters. Unconscious longing and tell stories. I'm reading this that pictures could, <laughs> could alone could not. Well, I'm, I'm look. I was reviewing what I said that night. Yeah, and and that's true. I mean, and I I hear music from Psycho if I'm driving and <laughs> I get you know it just it spooks me out. Yeah, it spooks out too. <laughs> well, this movie came out five years after your Oscar-winning performance. And on the waterfront, Yay. which what what a what a five year run that was. Uh, how did you come to be cast as Eve? And and what was it about? What did Alfred Hitchcock see looking back and and the perspective? What do you think he saw in you that he wanted to quote get you out from behind the kitchen sink? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I've never figured it out because I did Hatful of Rain. Uh, before, and that was the sink to sink that he thought I shouldn't do any more of. And of course, I said, I can't promise you that. I love those stories. <laughs> uh, but it may be uh, that certain feeling with Bob Hope, where I wore Edith had beautiful clothes and mm-hmm. my hair up. Uh, I made that with Bob Hope. You know, that certain feeling, the first we sang and we danced. I don't think many people saw that film, but I had such a good time. Now, I, I, that's, that's my theory that maybe he saw me all dressed up. Uh-huh. What would you say working with Marlon Brando and Elia Kazan on all the waterfront on the waterfront prepared you for Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock? No, <laughs> it was very different. It was completely different. The, the Catholic girl from the waterfront to the six sexy spy. Like, listen, working and uh, working with someone like Kazan who directed me to, on the waterfront and and Alfred Hitchcock completely different. And yet both, I think, are geniuses. Mm. I, re- I really feel that. And I was privileged to work with uh, both of them. Very, very different. I'm from the actor studio, and Kazan was there, et cetera. So was Marlon. So was uh, Carl Malden. And, and probably the whole cast, most of the people were from, on the, were from the uh, actor studio. And then to go to North by Northwest, where there was no rehearsal, and I remember... I'm married to a director, and he would he always says, "No, just find something, find something about your leading man that you can like." Well, <laughs> I always do. I mean, it's either the voice or or the face mm, or whatever. And <laughs> when I came home from my first day with Cary Grant, he said, "Okay, honey, now what about Cary Grant?" I said, "The whole man." <laughs> <laughs> I love Cary Grant. That's not beautiful about him starting 
from the man himself. He wow. was a very giving. I sound like Pollyanna, but it's true. I've had some wonderful leading men. But he was very special, and he he would say things like, I, "Who is Cary Grant? I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Sounds pretty humble. <laughs> yeah, and I thought I say, well, "Let me let me tell you, just let me let's start at the feet and go up, or the head and go down." <laughs> well, uh, Hitchcock as a director, how how hands on was he with with telling you what he wanted out of a performance, and what made him more hands on with your physical? Appearance, or what? What lengths did he go through to make sure that he what that that Eve Kendall looked like the way he wanted her to look? Well, I, I he he didn't work like Kazan, just the opposite. He never talked about feelings. He never talked about the life within the the spy lady. He didn't talk about that. But he dressed me in such a way, and he had he was so specific about everything. From my hair to my makeup to the jewelry to the gloves to the hat to the coat to the dress to the skirt, everything to the makeup, everything about Eve Kendall. And when when he gave me these things that he wanted me, how he wanted me to look, then I began to realize what kind of lady this lady was, this com- complicated lady. So it was really working backwards for me as an actress, but... I, I really love playing her. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think Eve is my favorite of the Hitchcock blondes because she's really? so sassy. That train scene oh, where she's really she makes the yeah. moves. I love that. How much fun were scenes How like that? How much fun was that? Yeah. Just so, but you know what? I realized the other day I'm smoking in that scene, right? <laughs> yes. Oh yes, I you would are. never do that in a movie as long as I again no. ever. I I, I I shudder to think. Maybe some, how many young people, young women were, you know, they, they saw that and I thought, oh, that's the way to get a guy. To celebrate Inherent Vice being in cinemas, episode 18 of Profiles focused on director Paul Thomas Anderson. Malone and Mance were lucky enough to be able to sit down with one of the stars and fellow film geek Josh Brolin. Our show is Profiles. Our next spotlight is on Paul Thomas Anderson. And you just made Inherent Vice with Paul Thomas Anderson. Amazing. You see the connection? <laughs> so you see let's the connection? Start off this with, is amazing. This is amazing. <laughs> let's start off with something simple. You play <laughs> Detective Bigfoot. Kind of a jerk. A mm? little bit. How would you describe him? Well, you just described him. <laughs> kind of a jerk. I think he's kind of, he's pathetic. He's more pathetic than he is a jerk. So much. You know, I mean his relationship with Doc is almost a marriage, I think. A very dysfunctional one at that. But I think, you know, I mean, he's a multifaceted guy on the lower end of the, you know, human spectrum. So you see him with his wife. He's getting yelled at. You see him with his kids. His kids are pouring him a drink. You see him with Doc, and he's having this conversation where he's totally manipulating him. And then you see him at the end, and he's the guy that loses it completely because he has the least amount of strength. So I think he is multifaceted, but down here. (laughs) <laughs> Down here. Well, this is Paul Thomas Anderson's seventh movie as a director. Right. What is it about his films, especially in this one, that makes him different from other filmmakers you've worked with and you've worked with the greats? I mean, he's just one. He is one of the greats. And how? Do, what constitutes one of the greats is somebody who can create an ambiance that is electrical for actors, but then also has some kind of you know, structural discipline. And he has amazing... I mean, he does... You'd never know it when you talk to him that he has... I'm obviously very intelligent, but he's done 
enormous amount of like prep and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then when you get to the set, he's more like, you know, I don't know. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? So he's will- he's willing to be instinctual, but he's also very prepared at the same time. So I don't know. You see his movies. You look at, you know, Sydney, which was what? Heart Eight. You look at Boogie Nights. You look at, uh, you know, There Will Be Blood. You look at Magnolia. You look at all these films and you realize that this guy can go in any direction. He's just really good at telling a story. Very much so. Is it yeah. hard to define a Paul Thomas Anderson film? Because it seems like they're all so different from each other. This one is different again. <laughs> no, it's completely different. And, and no, not there's no through line to all the films, I don't think. But every film is very definably him. You know what I mean? If you get to know him at all, you realize, oh, yeah, that's There Will Be Blood. That's <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. And that's that film, and that's that film. But he's so, I think his interest is, like, he has so many hands and so many jars just via his personality that you understand how somebody like that can do that. You see some filmmakers that will make the same film over and over, and they love a genre that they do. He's, you know, he's, he's much more uh, scattered than that. But how, how is he working with actors? I mean, some directors are very hands-on, give a lot of direction, as they should, because they are the director, and others are more concerned with just the look and really just trust the actors to do their thing because, I mean, that's their I job. think he's both. I think you don't, you know, I think, like, like the Coen brothers are very, you know, they're hands-on, but they're not so much. They're not very, you know, Tom, you know Paul will get in there and he'll start... I mean, he, he wants everybody to completely open up and feel that kind of familial buzz that you get in a creative environment. And all oh, that sounds so pretentious, but it's that that's what he creates. And he can't help but create it because he is that. He was like born that. I could see him as a child putting blocks together, but then he start going that way and that way and that way. You know, and he, he creates he creates a, a situation on the set that I think is so creatively alive that you get addicted to it, you know, and then you have to actually go through something when the film's over. You're like, oh, man, i got to go home, <laughs> go to sleep and watch TV. That's no fun. And this one, your scenes with Joaquin Phoenix were my favorite. Oh, good. It's so good, the oh, back good. and forth between you. Joaquin's worked with Paul Thomas Anderson before. Yeah, great Did you movie. notice they had a little shortcut or something? Total shortcut. No, no, no. It's not very verbal. I did not, you know, they could look at each other and they could just go, what you, you know, and then you, you just get a nod of the head or whatever, and then he'd do something completely different. But that's what you get. I, you know, I, I have that working with the Coens for three times now, and, and you have a thing. But I had it with him, too, but in a very different way. We're in both enjoy gabbing, you know, <laughs> talking, and we were able to go into the book and talk about different facets of the book and all that. But then when you show up on set and end up doing a scene, it's very, you know, there's something like, it's like an infancy. You know, you think you can know everything and then not until you show up and do it. And he likes that. He likes that kind of uncertainty, you know. And you, you feel that watching the film. There's this kind of like on edge thing always, especially with Bigfoot and Doc. Yeah. I think... I no, think. it's true. Ah. Well, last question. Other than Inherent Vice, mm-hmm. what are your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movies and why? Wow, man. They're all they're all great. And I don't say that because it's a publicity thing. I say <laughs> that because I love his films. You know, I mean, it, There Will Be Blood to me was an unbelievable film, but I didn't love it when I first saw it. And then my third time that I saw it, it turned out to be one of my favorite films. So Boogie Nights, I think, was amazing. Heart Eight was incredible for a first film. I can't believe that was his first film. Yeah. And he was young. And he was really young. And you see, if you ever watch the extras or whatever behind this, I mean, it's fun to watch him because he's so impassioned. He's so into it. So, you know, it's fun working with somebody like that. He's like a, he's a, he's a little kid with some maturity in there somewhere. 
And what better way to end this best of the guest episode than with the highlight of Malone and Mance's careers, getting to talk on the phone to legendary director Francis Ford Coppola in Profiles, Episode 11. Are very, very honored and proud and excited to join, to be joined by Oscar winner himself, Francis Ford Coppola. Mr. Coppola, you are on with Scott and Alicia. Hello. Hello, hello, Scott. Hello, Alicia. Yes, I'm here. Hi. You said Thank my you name. Thank you so I'm much. Excited. Yeah, we're, we're very <laughs> excited. We are just having the best time celebrating your extraordinary career. So thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. And this year marks the 40th anniversary of both The Conversation and The Godfather Part Two. And before we get into those films, you know, they would not have really have happened without the first Godfather, which I read that you originally – passed on directing so why why did you pass and what helped you change your mind to bring it back to it well you know at the time uh, and, and really my whole life what i really wanted to do was to be a, a filmmaker who wrote and direct more personal independent style films and uh, at that time when they showed me the godfather it was of course a, a popular best-selling book and anyone who's actually read the book knows that the part that made up the film, which was the story of Don Corleone and his sons, was just a section of the book. The book had lots of other parts, some of them a little steamy, and, and when I first read it, I thought sort of uh, like uh, almost a potboiler, you know, a book that was uh, uh, trying to sell on the base of a uh, very salacious story of... of uh, but. But you know, I I I, I didn't I, I the part of the of the Don and his sons was interesting, but I felt as a whole the book wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to do. And actually, it was George Lucas who was my young associate at the time who said, "Francis, you know, you got to do this. This is a real job, and we need the money. So you know, please." Try to change your mind. <laughs> we are so glad that you did The Godfather, one of the greatest films ever made. I know originally it was set in the 70s, so why did you want to set it in the period time of the 40s? 40s. Yeah. No, it wasn't set in the book and in the story. It was set in the 40, 40s, right. but this was the 70s when it was made, and the studio wanted to make it as a pretty low-budget film, which is how I got the part. <laughs> and uh, and they wanted to shoot it, you know, not in New York, where the story really took place, but in Kansas City, and just shoot it in contemporary times. So that, uh, that would mean that all the clothes and the cars would all be of the 70s, uh, which would be the period of the shooting, so it would be cheap because everyone, you could just drive cars and it wouldn't have to be special period cars. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that the story, once I realized the story was of the father and his three sons, would be better in its original setting, which was New York right after the war in the 40s, and that's the way I tried to do it, and that's the way eventually I won out and did do it. Well, what, why was, a, was Paramount originally opposed to the casting of Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone and Al Pacino as Michael. And how did you win them over? And I understand that you actually had to do sort of a fake screen test with Brando <laughs> to convince the, the studio that he was right for the part of Vito. Well, their, their disagreement with the casting was, of course, very different. Marlon Brando, who was very famous, had appeared in a number of movies just around that time, one in particular called Burn. Uh, Quemada was his foreign name, which which didn't make any money, and he had made a few films that didn't have a big box office, and so 
they were convinced that uh, to have Brando in the film would actually keep people away. Oh, wow. Also, he had a reputation for being troublesome and uh, kind of having antics on the set that would cause delays and, and, and trouble, so they they really wanted to avoid him. But Pacino, the, 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 the reason was different. It was because he was so unknown. He was young. He had never been in a film. He had been in some theater. Uh, and he was, you know, he he wasn't a recognizable star. They would prefer someone like Ryan O'Neill or, or uh, who had been the big uh, hit in Love Story, which they made, or even, uh, or even, um, you know, another well-known, Robert Redford or someone. Uh, and uh, and it's just that I felt that when I read the book, I saw Pacino's face because uh, mm. I knew him. And it was hard for me to get that image out of my mind. It's hard to imagine anyone else playing that role. <laughs> when it came to making The Godfather Part Two, did the studio leave you alone? <laughs> yes, they did. They yeah. were, thanks, thanks to them. And then uh, the success of the first one, I had a free hand with it. It was good because that was a very complicated movie. That had locations in Lake Tahoe in California, in Los Angeles, in Las Vegas, in the Dominican Republic, mm. in New York, and in Sicily. So it was a big, complicated production, and uh, it went very smoothly. Oh, wow. Well, you know, The Godfather Part Two is so – it's such a, a bold, ambitious, complex movie. Uh, it's, it's epic with a capital E. And, and to know that this movie came out the same year as The Conversation, 1974 – and Conversation won the top prize in Cannes. And, and then Godfather Part Two. You, you win three Oscars for that film. I mean, what was it like being Francis Ford Coppola during <laughs> that year? I mean, that must have given you just so much confidence and vindication for your for everything that you fought so hard to do. Well, you know, it was, you know, I think people don't understand that creative people have a lot of self-doubt and a lot of trepidation and they may act uh, very uh, assertive but in fact uh, alone looking in the mirror they're as terrified as anyone <laughs> who would uh, go on a big enterprise you know to be a creative person means that you have to doubt yourself and uh, those were big tough movies and uh, of course I was able to get the little personal film the conversation in on the ride so um, and then, but you know, I, I I may have felt confident, but then when I went to want to make Apocalypse Now, nobody wanted to make it, and I found myself right back in the same place I had been. That despite the having made the first Godfather, the conversation, and the second Godfather in a row over a few year period, that nobody wanted to uh, help me and and finance, and ultimately, you know, I ended up financing. Um, uh, Apocalypse Now myself, which mm. meant not that I had any money, which meant I went on <laughs> on on uh, on the on in debt to do it at a time when interest, by the way, was nineteen percent. So it was a pretty scary. But yes, it's true that in those days I made Godfather, Conversation, Godfather Two, Apocalypse Now, one after the other. Mm. You know, each one a super difficult production and. Uh, and, uh, in fact, I never even thought I was going to survive uh, that last film, but uh, as things turned out, I did. Yeah. Wow. And each of those films are so different from each other. We have so much fun. We rewatched all those movies in <laughs> preparation for this. The conversation, I had so much fun watching again, even though I've seen it about ten times. And I was reading that that is actually your favorite film of you, dir what you directed. Is that right? 
Well, it's, it's, it's yes, because it was it was smaller, it was more personal, it was more intimate, and I got to write the story and the script. You know, that was my dream as a kid. I wanted to write the story and the script and make a personal film because at that time we were seeing those films coming from France and Italy and Japan, and and uh, they were very inspiring, the, the, these European movies, which were more, uh, you know, called auteur films. They were made by a person who's just not a director hired, but someone who is really an author and who, who in some way had a personal connection with the film. Well, Mr. Coppola, we are honored and grateful. Yes. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with Alicia and me on Profiles. I mean, this is a true celebration of your work and of your career. Just and a dream come true to talk to you. Really, well, really where is. Where are you? I don't know where, where you are. I'm talking to you, but I haven't you could be anywhere. But... <laughs> we are in L.A. Don't let my accent fool oh. you. <laughs> yes. Uh, she's from Australia. I'm from Philadelphia. But uh, we are both talking to you from Los Angeles. And, and... Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for your your enthusiasm it, it does my heart good to know that all those miserable nights when i was suicidal that ends up in a happy way like this so thank you and and uh my pleasure to talk to you all the thank best you to so you much. sir thank you so much have a great day you too bye-bye Oh, oh my, my god. god. <laughs> oh my god. My mind, blown. mind was, is blown. I was like tongue tied. I was just Give so excited. Right that nice. is just a dream wow. come wow. true to nice. talk to you. I can't right. even come on. I can't even do it nice. properly. Okay, that's better. <laughs> okay, much Woo. better. Okay. I gotta say, so twenty one shows yeah. since the beginning of August and we had Nolan, Burton, Ridley Scott, I mean, Matthew Broderick, Dermot Mulroney, Richard Donner, <laughs> oh my which almost didn't happen, but it did. <laughs> it did. And then we, this was just, just the first 21 shows. Can you imagine what the next 21 are going to be like? I can't even imagine. I know we've got some irons in the fire yes, for some big guests coming up. Definitely we've got do. a lot of plans for profiles. Next week, we'll be back to regular programming talking about... Tom Hanks. Yes. That's, that's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a tough, fast five. That's going to be a tough, fast five. So we're going to need your help. Make sure you go to our profiles with Malona Mance Facebook page. Give it a like. Chime in on what your favorite Tom Hanks movies are. And make sure you go to iTunes and mm-hmm. subscribe. Rate and review us on iTunes. Can't tell you how important it is for you to go on and to rate and review, review us on iTunes. Yeah, it's so great to see the little show that could being at the top of the chart. So let's keep it there and Keep also there. go to youtube.com slash popcorn talk network we will see you next week bye, bye. from producers maria menounos kevin undergaro phil spitek christian harloff and the entire popcorn talk network we would like to thank you for tuning in for questions or comments be sure to visit popcorntalk.com i'm sir richard wentworth and this has been a presentation of the popcorn talk network the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.